Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Quacked Out Podcast. This is Reed. Uh, I'm recording this kind of shorter segment at the top of the show uh, to address a few of the big things that have broken over the past few days. The rest of the episode we recorded on Tuesday night. We talk a lot about the big recruiting weekend that happened, as well as some early practice reports uh, and a few other you know news and notes items. Um, obviously, the big thing that I, I wanted to hit on was the Noah Whittington commitment. Uh, that was a major addition for Oregon in my mind. Um, not so much because I think he'll come in and start above Cardwell at running back, but, uh, in terms of depth, it's really important, especially as we see it looking like seven McGee's going to primarily be featured as a wide receiver. And one of the things that you'll hear us talk about in the rest of the episode, um, is a bit about this article that, that Hifliday did, on Addicted to Quack, breaking down the Dillingham offense. And one of the key pieces of that was that uh, it includes some two-back sets, and that's something that Oregon hasn't really had for quite a while now. Um, And so in talking about that, we were were discussing, well, Oregon definitely will need some more depth at running back, it looks like, if they're going to, you know, run a two-back set out there because right now the scholarship backs – aren't deep at all. Um, and so I think Whittington is a guy who made a ton of sense as a pickup, right? Um, for those unfamiliar, he's running back from Western Kentucky. Obviously, the connection with Carlos Lachlan there, uh, you can look at as, as a big reason why he's making the move. Um, and I think y- you can turn on the tape. I'm still getting familiar with him, obviously. Uh, but he's got some speed. He's a little smaller. Um, he's got three years of eligibility left, which will be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but I think that he's a guy who's capable of contributing. And I just really like the idea of taking a transfer who you already have some familiarity with in the staff, especially when you're looking for a guy who you just want to come in and add some depth and be you know, a positive addition to the room. Uh, it feels a lot less risky to have you know, that be someone that you're running back coach has already worked with at a past stop. Um, so wanted to make sure I talked about that news with you guys real quick. Um, the other big thing that we talk a little bit about uh, later in the episode as well is, of course, some of the uh, rumors around Nico Ayamalave uh, and his reported uh, or speculated, I guess, NIL offer from Tennessee of $8 million. Um, we obviously talk about it a little bit in the episode. It's come to light even more uh, that that offer, you know, that was talked about in an athletic article in kind of vague terms seems like it was, in fact, to Nico from Tennessee. Uh, Nico since put out a top five, which included Oregon, which included Tennessee. Um, but uh, it it seems more and more like that recruitment is probably trending towards Tennessee. I stand by some of the things I say in the episode about, you know, is it 100% close? Maybe not. Um, but obviously, over the past few days, that's even picked up more and more steam, I would say. Uh, and in particular, the last note that I kind of wanted to touch before we got into this interview, uh, or, or this podcast, I mean, is some of the Twitter activity we've seen from Coach Dillingham, the offensive coordinator, obviously, uh, really, you know, last night on Thursday night, 
um, I thought was was really interesting. I hadn't seen anything like it from a coordinator, uh, really. Obviously, I don't follow others as closely as I do, you know, coordinators who go through Oregon. But uh, he was retweeting, geez, it must have been, you know, 20 or 30 fans. Uh, and they all those posts, you know, basically were in the spirit of, we want to make Jaden Rashada a priority. Uh, Rashada is our guy. Rashada's, you know, been a, a top option all along. He's never been a, you know, second priority. Um, and full steam ahead, kind of trying to go after Rashada. That was really interesting to me just as a fan and seeing, like, you know, obviously Joe Moorhead didn't have a big social media presence and especially didn't, you know, make any hints or nudges about recruiting on his on his Twitter or anywhere else. Uh, and it's pretty interesting to see a coordinator be as explicit as Dillingham was on his Twitter feed last night, basically, you know, putting out there, okay, number one on our board or whatever, or, or this guy on our board is trending away from us. Let me really spread the word about Rashada uh, and more, I guess, to a, a lesser extent, maybe are the next guys on our board uh, and just kind of make that process really transparent with fans. Obviously, he can't tweet it out himself, but the retweets and everything uh, were an interesting piece. So if you missed that, I would you know recommend go just look at Coach Dillingham's page and all the things he retweeted. Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, and we'll see how that progresses, right? I mean, overall, I think the one good thing about this uh, is that it at least happened early. We're still in March. There's time to reshuffle the board to make Rashada or whoever it is a priority and to get another quarterback. Um, it's much better than Tennessee, you know, for instance, dropping this $8 million bag on Nico in the 11th hour uh, and all of a sudden you know it's it's right at the spring game or something or it's the end of May and then we thought we're you know Oregon thinks they're getting Nico Nico goes somewhere else and all of a sudden you know maybe Rashad already has a top three out uh, and is already trending towards another school you know so I think there's plenty of time for Oregon to reset uh, the staff's as we talk about, you know, throughout this, a lot of good vibes coming out of the weekend. It seems like things are going positive. Uh, I think everyone in the Ducks fan base is, is just looking for some results and commitments to come through. Uh, not to say we shouldn't be patient about that, but that's the next step in this process and kind of uh, us really learning more about what we have in this staff in terms of recruiting and talent acquisition. Um, so that's it for the top of this thing. I hope you enjoy the rest of the episode. Uh, thanks and go ducks. Hello. Welcome back to the quacked out pod. It's been a little bit. I'm Charlie joined by Reed Reed. We had two spring practices for Oregon football and now they're on a huge break. I believe it's 17 days. Um, but before we get to all that, how are you doing, man? Yeah, doing well. Excited to, to have, Kind of the, I feel like people say there's no off season in college football, and I kind of think there is an off season, but it's basically just the month of February, like after National yeah. Signing Day. There's like this month where, where some coaches take time off and stuff, and then it's into spring practice. So, I mean, obviously the first two practices, there's not like a ton of uh, a ton you get from them. We'll go through some of the little tidbits we have, but 
excited for us to kind of be inching back into football and recruiting news uh, slowly here. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the recruiting stuff. There's been <laughs> a lot of interesting Oregon-centric and just kind of national news about recruiting that we'll touch on. Um, and also, you know, we learned a couple things during this kind of dead time. Um, so, yeah, we'll share all that. First thing I think we got to lead with, uh, Jalen Davies, former Oregon cornerback. Didn't get a ton of time last year, but, you know, he was a freshman. Goes to UCLA. He is he entered the transfer portal a couple weeks ago, and now he's landed with the Bruins. Um, again, not necessarily a regular contributor yet, uh, but it's still kind of interesting. Maybe he's just not getting the same vibes that he wants, more of a Mario guy. I'm not sure. What do you make of this transfer? Yeah, it sounds like from the little tidbits we've gotten that that it kind of was a decision that was already looming before this staff even stepped in. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, it would be a bigger hit if, if Oregon hadn't recruited cornerback pretty well around him. Uh, I think, you know, getting Dickerson in, the cl- in his class uh, was a really good pickup. And then having, obviously, the two Julials, Tucker and Florence, come in um, is you know, a huge positive as well that kind of like, I I wouldn't say that you recruited over him necessarily, but certainly you have a lot of other options. Um, And some that I think are probably project as better players long-term, you know, Davies was a top 150 guy. And like a lot of guys who come out of modern day, he was kind of like had more experience in the competition playing at a high level. Um, but maybe athletically didn't project as like a, a future first round pick or something. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that there's kind of probably a higher ceiling on Tucker and Florence and getting those guys reps is going to be fine. Uh, and really the issue wasn't, you know, cornerback, we're looking for a second guy to step up uh, alongside Christian Gonzalez after Mikhail Wright and DJ James left. Mm-hmm. But there is a large group of guys in terms of depth, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of playable guys. So it's not like it was that big of a hit. I felt like, uh, necessarily in large part because of the recruiting success and everything. Yeah. So, I mean, let's use that as a transition to talk about some stuff we've learned in spring practice. Uh, you mentioned corner depth and who's going to start alongside Gonzalez. Again, he's the veteran. He's kind of assumed to be in that spot. Uh, it was going to look like a two-horse race, kind of, between Dante Manning and Triquez Bridges. But, as we learned from some practice reports, uh, Bridges has moved to safety in practices. So, I think it might be safe to say that's Manning's spot, at least for now. Um, again, this is March 15th we're recording this, so it's it's not exactly <laughs> what's going to be on the field in fall, necessarily. Um, but I think it's safe to say that that's kind of his spot for now. Um, you mentioned Avante Dickerson being in that same class, Darren Barkins as well in that 21 class. And then you got three guys coming in that, that could be corners, obviously the two Jaleels and the Kamari Terrell as well in this 22 class. None of those three 22 guys are in spring practice yet. So we don't necessarily know where they sit in the depth chart. From what I understand, Manning and Gonzalez were the two taking like quote unquote first team reps. Again, this is March. Um, in those first couple <laughs> practices. Right. And then Dickerson and Barkins were the other two. You know, Dondrell Brooks is the only other scholarship guy in the corner room who I haven't named yet. So 
we don't necessarily know how that's going to shake out yet, but an interesting development nonetheless. Um, hopefully the Ducks can get some return on Davies from the transfer portal. Uh, has Mitchell Agude landed anywhere yet? I don't think I've Googled his name in a while. No, no. Yeah, he's just coming off his, his Oregon visit. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one to watch as well. Um, potentially. I mean, we'll see, we'll see how that goes. I wouldn't necessarily say. Uh, I don't know. That, that recruitment's been a little under wraps, as is often the case, I think, with transfers. Um, mm-hmm. So we'll see how that shakes out exactly. I don't have a strong lean anyway right now. Um, yes, but speak- yeah, and they already got Coda back from UCLA. I saw. Yeah, Kripia yeah. <laughs> put out a funny tweet that was uh, kind of like looking at the yeah. the Oregon offseason moves as if they were trade acquisitions because we have, uh, you know, Oregon gave three players to Auburn and got Bo Nix back. Oregon gave Micah Pittman and Trey Benson to Florida State and got Dillingham back. You know, it's just funny. There have been a lot of back and forth trades in in this offseason. It feels like for Oregon. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. Obviously, these are all players making their own decisions, but I, I did see that tweet, and that was kind of funny. Um, it's just another way to think about things in more of a pro sports mindset. Speaking of transfers, we had three of them uh, who were in these first two spring practices. That would be Bo Nix, Christian Gonzalez, and Taki Taimani on the D-line. Um, we don't really know how any of these guys looked. We don't really know, you know... We got the little tidbit about Gonzalez, maybe in the first team reps. Can we just set the record straight right now? Like, what is the official stance of this podcast regarding the quarterback room? Are we just, are you also just assuming it's going to be Knicks? Can we get that out of the way? Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not totally assuming it's going to be Knicks yet. Okay. Um, because of what happened at, at Florida State uh, with Jordan Travis getting the job. I think, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I think, but I feel better about Knicks than, than we did about Anthony Brown. I mean, we've, yeah, <laughs> I think most people feel that way. Um, but we'll see. I don't know. I'm, I'm not ready to write off Thompson or Butterfield, though. Not yet, necessarily. Interesting. I, I kind of think Knicks <laughs> Are you is le- incumbent, yeah. but whatever. You know, I, I can keep the same energy I did last year where it's like, we'll just wait and see. I'll, I'll let the quarterback competition play itself out. Um, assuming there is an actual quarterback competition, uh, I'm, I'm going to take those words at face value from the coaching staff. Um, all right, let's talk about some position changes. Cause I think this is the most important information we can really get out of these first two practices. Again, yeah. it, it seems really bizarre to even have these practices at this point, like it's two days and then you're going away for more than two weeks. And then coming back for like real full spring practice, and also the way, real quick, the way Oregon's academic structure works. Like, yes, you have early enrollees like you do in the rest of college football, but then you have, you can have early early enrollees, as in winter term guys. So like for me as a student, right now is finals week of winter term, so only the guys who have registered at the beginning of winter term are at practice right now. Uh, that's why you don't see, I mean, I believe Anthony Jones is the only 2022 recruit actually in the door already for these first two practices. Um, so just something to keep in mind there. That's why there's not a lot of guys at this, you know, at these first two iterations. Yeah. It's actually a, a nice thing for Oregon though, because it means that guys who signed in February can still enroll in, um, you know, can enroll after this spring right now for the, mm-hmm. I guess you call it the spring term. Um, yeah. 
yeah, which exactly. some some places don't have. Uh, and it's like either you're in by January or you're coming in June. Uh, and so it's nice to have nice to have another opportunity for guys. And especially with the transfer market now for those guys to potentially get in uh, for for a little time in the spring, too. That's a great point. I didn't even thought about that. Um, but anyways, position changes, which is what I originally wanted to talk about. Uh, Jackson Powers Johnson is probably the biggest one out of all these. Mm-hmm. He and Jonah Miller, uh, kind of backup offensive linemen. I don't even know if he got snaps last year. They both moved to the defensive line. Uh, this puts, by my scholarship count, O-line and D-line at even numbers and an even 14 each. Um, <laughs> maybe Lanning saw enough in the Alamo Bowl of Jackson Powers Johnson to <laughs> put him in nose tackle. Like, What's the thinking behind this, man? <laughs> yeah, I think we've talked we've talked a little bit about you know Cristobal bulked up a ton on the offensive line, and early it seems like with some of the transfers, um, Landing is kind of trying to switch that you know some extra scholarships over to the defensive line and get some more bodies rotated in there instead. Um, and, you know, I think that's an interesting choice for sure. I think it'll prove valuable, especially in a game like the Georgia game, um, to have extra bodies there. But we'll see how it works out when you go into the Pac-12 schedule. Um, I mean, with with Jackson Powers Johnson, I think that's the most meaningful one because he's a guy who everyone already had highlighted as someone who, if he stayed on the offensive line track, you know, is probably in line to start next year um, mm-hmm. pretty solidly, you know. And so it's a big move to take a guy who you have slotted as a starter next year and move him to the other side. You don't do that if you don't think that, you know, that that he can contribute on that side of the ball as well. Um, and, you know, we, we liked what we saw in general in the Alamo Bowl, I guess. I mean, he's, he's strong. He gets pushed whether he's blocking someone or, you know, pushing, fighting against a block, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it, really. I I liked him a lot as offensive line prospect, and so I'm still kind of grappling with what he looks like as a defensive line prospect. Yeah, I don't know. I I think it's interesting. I might push back a little bit that he was going to be a full-time starter. I mean, we're used to thinking that way about O-linemen because, like, Mario would play eight guys at offensive. He would essentially have eight offensive starting O-linemen, not, like, five. But, I mean, Bass, Jones, Sala, Forsyth, and no, Walk are all coming back, right? And yeah, no, five to be, guys right there. To be clear, I meant that he would, in, in 2023, he would have, oh, okay. have had, like, a spot locked down and probably would have been a rotation guy this year. I don't, yeah, I don't think he would have been a a shoe-in to start this fall, but he was in line to, I it seemed like, for sure be a starter in 2023, right? Yeah, he was definitely like the sixth man of the offensive line. Uh, exactly, yeah. Maybe alongside Dawson Jaramillo in that kind of role, who is still, you know, is still around, and I expect to be getting some snaps at some point uh, on the offensive line. Again, we'll see how Lanning operates that way. I would assume it's he reverts to a more traditional style of like, these are our five, let's get them as many reps as they can, as we can together. Um, again, unlike Mario, like it's, it's, it was a very odd system to kind of be introduced to be introduced to. Um, 
playing eight guys, but whatever. Some other <laughs> changes, uh, maybe some that we've already mentioned. DJ Johnson is back to defense. We kind of knew that yeah. was going to happen. Same with Jeff Bossa staying at linebacker. We, we kind of had an inclination that that was going to be the case. Um, I put out a tweet, DJ Johnson, and shout out Ots and Audibles for mentioning this. He's had five numbers and five five numbers and four different positions in his uh, five years he's been at Oregon. So it can be hard to keep track of all those, but um, we assume he'll be back uh, maybe in like an edge role. We mentioned TriQuest Bridges to safety. Do you have any thoughts on that and how it impacts the room, or should we keep it moving? Uh, I think we'd speculated on it a bit before, um, and again, we'll you know we'll see if this holds. It, it was something that we thought you know they're going to have to sort through those bodies and make decisions on where guys land. And I like it because I think that the safety room uh, needs a little more depth for sure. After you lose Verone, especially, um, I think that I mean we're looking at. You know, Bennett Williams and Jamal Hill, who both played nickel primarily. Um, And then Steve Stevens, who it's been kind of a slow up and down with him. He's certainly talented uh, athletically, um, but he hasn't always been a huge impact guy, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's question marks there. Then Damon David is a guy who kind of flashed in spring and People kept thinking, oh, is he going to break out? And it never really came together last season. Um, and so to get a chance to have a guy like Triquez Bridges step into that room and compete, uh, and it makes sense because, you know, he's a longer guy. Uh, I think he came in as a safety initially, so he's kind of moving back there. Um, so I, I like the move, right? I, I think that that room probably needs it a little more uh, when you have a guy like Dante Manning, who you hope can take the next step this year at corner, mm-hmm. and some young people who uh, you feel pretty good about, you know, having having to take some spot snaps, some rotational snaps at corner. But who knows if injury strikes somewhere, maybe this gets flipped back or whatever. But I like the move for now. I think we'd we'd kind of speculated. It was one that I had my eye on, and uh, so it's interesting to see it actually happen. Uh, another, it's probably a good time to talk about this. Another very interesting development, Jonathan Flo, uh, younger brother of Justin, of course, right. is class of 2021, uh, former four-star redshirt freshman. He was in, like, the outside linebacker room, you know, the ed- kind of a, one of those edge positions. Um, hadn't really seen any playing time, uh, but he was reported to be practiced or to have moved to the DB spot. I guess he wasn't reported. That's what it said on the official roster that was released. Maybe he factors into that safety room as well. Maybe he's more of a nickel or something. Uh, I thought it was interesting that despite that change in the depth chart, he was still practicing with linebackers in practice. So I don't really know what to make of that. I don't know <laughs> if you have any thoughts on it. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know. I think they're probably just trying to find his where he fits exactly. Um, I mean, he's just kind of like, you know, the beast that is Jonathan Flo, or that is Justin Flo, kind of scaled down just a little bit. Um, and so we've seen some guys, you know, recently like a new kind of archetype on defense has been coverage linebackers, um, who are kind of flexible, like kind of hybrids mm-hmm. between safeties and linebackers. And so if that's a kind of tool that they want to use in this 
in this scheme, I think that he's a guy who could fit that, right, uh, and be mm-hmm. a little more physical. Um, I mean, we've seen a guy like Bennett Williams kind of lean into his tackling ability and be used in some of those situations uh, as well. So I think I think it's an interesting move, right? But, I mean, it's tough to ultimately evaluate it that much when we didn't see much of Jonathan Flo last year. Yeah. Uh, and we haven't seen him at all this year, you know, since the move. So uh, I'm interested to see what it's like. And it's ultimately not that high stakes of a move because he wasn't a guy who was in the too deep necessarily before the move. So we'll see, I guess. And that brings us to the last position change I have down here. Well, okay, I guess seven McGee to wide receiver, like maybe that counts. I I don't really think so. Um, But Adrian (laughs) Jackson, former outside linebacker, edge guy, Going to inside linebacker. And this is really interesting to me because he might have been slated for a borderline starting snaps. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> really interesting. We always talk about him as like a speed guy. Um, and, I mean, we know Lanning likes speedy inside linebackers, but didn't know we liked him this much. I mean, you look at the inside linebacker room now, and it is absolutely stacked. You got Sewell, Bassa, Justin Flo, Keith Brown, Jackson LaDuke, and now Adrian Jackson – two more recruits coming in in the 22 class that you're assuming like what do you make of this one yeah this one was surprising i think you you hit on the head in terms of this inside linebacker group i mean after being really decimated by injury last year actually is pretty deep as we head into spring um i think that i mean bass's emergence last year was really one of the most exciting storylines of the season I felt like Mm -hmm. uh and if flows back and healthy I mean you obviously have your one two you have a really solid third in Bassa you have a guy in Leduc that you want to get some more snaps that you saw promise in you have a guy in Keith Brown who because of you know injuries and necessity got put into a bigger role than you might have liked for him as a freshman but ultimately I mean that's experience that was helpful and it was up and down at times, but he, he's a guy who you certainly still think like could have a major role um, either this year or next year or the year after that. So it, it's not like there's a shortage of guys that you want to give snaps in this room. Uh, I guess it's only five deep before this. So, you know, you look at the edge, the edge numbers and there's a lot of guys. Um, there's a lot of guys slotted in the edge right now. Mm-hmm. And so I guess it's a little, there's a little less of the back half depth there uh, at inside linebacker, but the top five are really, you know, are probably better than the guys you have at edge right now. And Adrian Jackson with his age and his talent is a guy that I, you know, you probably want on the field, at least in some capacity or on a two deep, you know, so this was surprising to me for sure um, because, yeah, I mean, at edge right now, I'm, I'm seeing, you know, Mace Funa, Braden Swinson, DJ Johnson. Those are three guys that you feel good about. Um, but other than that, there's not a guy who I kind of would say is like a lock to be on the two deep necessarily, you know, uh, mm-hmm. like some guys who I think a, a lot of guys who could pop. And maybe the staff just is, is assuming one of them will or has seen something that, you know, they really like one one or two or three of those guys. Uh, but 
there's not a lot of proven names after Funa Swenson and DJ Johnson. And even those guys, yeah, especially yeah. Swenson and Johnson, aren't, aren't especially proven. So we'll see. Yeah, it's also interesting. Uh, now's a good time to mention the kind of most interesting number change I saw, which was Mace Funa changing from 47 to 18. So yeah. <laughs> in case you can't find Mace Funa's 47 anywhere on defense in the spring, that's apparently <laughs> he's number 18 now. I don't really get that, but, you know, do with that, yeah, that was I guess. That's not really a common linebacker number, I feel like. Yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned those three. After that, you're right. I mean, we're talking about guys like Brandon Buckner, Jabril McNeil, Jabril McNeil like Terrell Tillman, Jaden Navarrete, maybe Lanning really sees something in Jake Shipley. I'm not sure. Or maybe it's yeah. two of the younger guys. Like maybe, I mean, Jones is in practice. Maybe he looks good enough. Maybe Amari and Winston, maybe they think he's good enough to take some reps this year. Not sure, but definitely something to keep an eye on is that outside linebacker room. It, do you think that's the maybe the biggest position group question other than quarterback right now? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's probably safe to say, right? I think ultimately, I mean, a, a big part of that, obviously, you lose Kayvon, and that's like a huge storyline. And and a big part of it is not only like coming up with those pass rush, you know, pressures uh, based on personnel, but also based on scheme. I mean, that's really what you're hoping is that is that Landon can capture some of his success at Georgia and just scheme some of these guys into pass rushing wins. Um, but yeah, from a personnel perspective, I think that, that that probably is the biggest question mark is the edge spot right now. Yeah, pretty interesting. Um, again, we'll, we'll have a lot more information on spring practice stuff once spring term actually starts, which once again for U of O is the week after next. We're on finals right now, we get spring break next week, and then we're back to school. So... We'll see how many more early enrollees are here as opposed to the winter term enrollees that we saw during these practices. But um, any final thoughts on what little we've seen of spring practice? No, no, not really. There, there really isn't that much, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, the, the position changes and number changes are most of what it's been. I think it's a lot of walkthroughs and just like learning how they want to practice. Um, but positive stuff so far. I mean, not a lot of negative stuff gets out, especially when, you know, a guy like Rob Mosley has the majority of the access. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I mean, and Rob's great at his job, but he ultimately is like a university employee. So it's yeah. not super, yeah. he's not going to be hypercritical in the practice reports. Uh, and it's so early that it's not like, they're, you know, going full on scrimmage and a quarterback's going to have four picks in a day or something to even write about. So, yeah, yeah. we'll, we'll see. We'll see how it progresses as it goes on. I want to be clear for anybody who's like not a media member, which is I'm assuming most of the people listening to this <laughs> podcast. Um, if you're not a universe, if you're not Rob Mosley or Joey Mack, like the two university reporters, um, you get like 15 minutes of practice and you basically get to watch players warm up and like start doing drills. Uh, and you watch from the sidelines. So it's not like you can walk in between practice mm -hmm. and stuff. It's really not that much access if we're being honest. Um, and that yeah, makes and sense. Then you, get you, know, to do you, the, you get to do the interviews afterwards too, if depending on yeah. who's media available on the day, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the SID from the athletic department who 
you know, sports information director, so the guy who literally controls the information, will tell you, like, who's available, and then you go out to the courtyard and mill around and uh, interview different players and Dan Lanning, although he's been doing it on Zoom. Um, so anyways, that, that's just a little bit behind the curtain of what these practices look like and why sometimes practice information can be extremely vague and, like, weird. Uh, also, there's there can be drama about, like, personnel especially, about, like, who's injured. You know, you, we heard Lanning talk about, he had a question about um, two guys who weren't in practice, uh, Andrew Boyle and then somebody else whose name escapes me, maybe Jalen Smith. Um, and he was very noncommittal to talking about. It. He literally, like, just dodged the question entirely and was like, we're talking about people who are here. So, you know, it makes sense from, like, a coaching standpoint. Like, you don't want your enemies, uh, your rivals, learning any crucial information. Um, and that kind of stuff does matter. Like, you know, rival coaches will check, like, <laughs> different websites, just like you and I, to glean information about each other's programs. So, Yeah, um, or... Or even for, you know, medical reports for when players go to the draft and stuff. If you can limit the kind of negative information that's out there, like that's that's also something that's in the interest of the players and therefore kind of in, in the interest of the program. Mm-hmm. And so the, they, they try to keep that stuff under wraps as much as possible, kind of. Yeah, and even for guys who are still in the building, like, say you're like a player's mom or something, you don't want to read about an injury on Twitter. You want to know it, like, before it happens you don't need the world discussing like your son's ankle or whatever um <laughs> so you know that would be pretty uncomfortable so in the best interest of pretty much everybody actually inside the program um we might not get that much injury information especially with landing but you know we take what we can get and we will relay everything we get to you um okay that's a wrap on spring practice i see you got a couple more notes in here where do you want to take this yeah, the other thing I wanted to touch on uh, is uh, a really good article that, that Hithliday put out on Addicted to Quack. Um, search that up. I'm sure you can find it via his Twitter or whatever. Um, and certainly our explanation won't be a substitute for reading it because he, he gives some good in-depth stuff. Um, but it was interesting for you know the rest of us who maybe don't have the time to pour through all the hours of film that that Hith does, nor the knowledge to really yeah, understand, understand everything it. that's yeah. going on. Um, I think that a few notes from it that that stood out to me, um, because obviously we're all kind of curious about what the Dillingham office, offense is going to look like. I think it was probably the boldest hiring decision uh, that Landing really made. Uh, mm-hmm. and it's always really important to have a good offensive coordinator with a defensive-minded head coach. And he went with a guy who uh, has some experience, but not as a direct play caller. Uh, you know, it's not – he doesn't have the resume that, that Moorhead did when he came in here necessarily. Um, he's, a, he's more young, more unproven. Um, but anyway, so, so to go to the Hithliday article – uh, the first thing is that, you know, there were some, a lot of structural similarities to what Moorhead was doing in terms of still a heavy RPO attack. Uh, and that's something that you definitely want to see because that just feels like the nature of where this sport is going, especially at the college level with the, you know, rules and things that you're allowed to do uh, in terms of blocking downfield. And, you know, it, it just is, mm-hmm. it, it's the best way to take advantage on offense of, 
the rules that are in place uh, and to exploit mismatches, to get an open space, to put the defense in conflict. Um, it also specific- matches the personnel that we already have on the team, which is nice. Right, right. Um, specifically, one thing that I thought was really interesting uh, was he said that uh, two back sets, two running back sets were really common in the Dillingham Norvell offense. Hmm. Um, and that was something I didn't necessarily know. And obviously something that we haven't been accustomed to much at Oregon, uh, that made it, um, even more interesting to me that, uh, that Oregon doesn't have that deep of a running back room right now, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made me wonder a bit, you know, what seven McGee's role is going to be exactly because obviously he's technically gotten that move over to um, wide receiver, but at the same time, you know, in a two-back set where you have one guy as a pass-catching back, potentially, um, he could make a lot of sense for some of those reps, and maybe there's a chance that he still does take some of those, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, we'll see. We'll see where that goes, right? Uh, I think that another thing just philosophically that he talked about was that uh, there's a little more room in this offense um, to take advantage of personnel mismatches versus always kind of trying to scheme people open. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that that was something that I thought was a really interesting distinction between th- what Moorhead did and what Dillingham's potentially going to do. Um, I guess he said, you know, Dillingham was kind of a balance between personnel and scheme, whereas Moorhead was super focused on scheme. Uh, and I think that a flaw that we kind of saw in uh, Moorhead's offense was that, yeah, even if the scheme is good, you still need personnel to be effective, specifically at quarterback, quarterback. right? <laughs> I mean, there's no, it doesn't matter how good the scheme is. If the ball isn't on target to a guy, you know, it doesn't matter how open he is or anything. It, it can really, it just, completely messes up the flow of the offense Uh, and so that was tough right Um, and so I think that I think that we have the personnel now to get those wins and I'm excited about that Um, specifically another area that that the article talked about was uh, with tight end receiving threats kind of down the middle of the field stretching the defense deep Uh, Oregon obviously has two really big tight ends uh, in Ferguson and Montevallo that we're excited about you know, not to mention some of the older guys, Spencer Webb, um, mm-hmm. particularly who have shown to be, you know, effective receivers. So it was a really good article. It made me a little more familiar with what we might be able to expect. I know that's been kind of a really common question uh, from people this off season, And I've familiarized myself before with some of the, you know, Dillingham stuff and tried to watch pieces here and there of what he did and what Norvell did. Uh, at Memphis and a little bit at Florida State, but I think there's no substitute for a guy like Hithliday who just pours over the film uh, and has such a you know impressive knowledge of of scheme uh, that I think a lot of people in this fan base don't really have. So that's a resource mm-hmm. that we all should probably be taking advantage of. Hundred percent. We say it all the time. I mean, him and QB eleven are really the only guys I'm aware of who in this Oregon football community, like pour over film that much. Um, And he does a fantastic job. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to check that out. I haven't had time to yet. 
during finals week, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I like what I'm hearing <laughs> across the board about it. Uh, that that three that two back sets are really interesting to me. As of right now, the Ducks, with seven McGee moving to the wide receiver room, have literally three scholarship running backs, uh, being Byron Cardwell, Sean Dollars, and then Jordan James, who's a new addition. So really, really interested to see what that's going to look like. Maybe that part of his game gets scrapped at Oregon, but um, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Definitely the thinnest room. Um, despite the talent that we have in Cardwell. Yeah, so we'll I thought see what happens there. It was interesting that we heard a little bit um a little bit from Micah Pittman and his when he was deciding to transfer and obviously his kind of lead recruiter was uh was Dillingham at Florida State and he talked <laughs> about how he was a that offense was appealing to him because it was built for playmakers. And that was something that he felt like was lost during his time at Oregon under Cristobal. And it's tough to really yeah. disagree <laughs> with that. Uh, ultimately, I think there's a lot of, you know, team mentality and expecting people to sacrifice, you know, some of their individual receptions, especially, um, to establish the run and for the betterment of the team and you know that's if you want to coach that way i respect that and i do you know people should be selfless on a team I, I agree with all that but at the same time when you get when you recruit really well when you recruit the type of receivers oregon has and type of tight ends and all of that you know it makes sense to give them an opportunity to shine and ultimately that is what helps the team i mean look at like lsu with jamar chase and Justin Jefferson. It didn't hurt them at all that people knew those names and that they had impressive individual performances and that they got thrown a jump ball here and there and just were allowed to, you know, go get it. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to see that. I hope that this offense is more dynamic. I hope that it's, we get to know the players and the playmakers too, because I think sometimes with the way that it was run under Cristobal, the wide receivers kind of lost all personality. Uh, they kind of turned into, you know, kind of faceless uh, players out there Blockers. who just ran, yeah. blocked and ran a specific route, you know, short and got down. Uh, and we didn't get to see them kind of break out and make a big catch, make a big player, make a guy miss or something uh, in the way that we like so well used to know, you know, the specific style of uh, DeAnthony Thomas or Josh Huff or Braylon Addison, Jeff Mayle, whoever it was back in the day. It feels like we haven't had those dynamic receivers recently in the same way. And part of that is because of the offensive design, I think, not just the personnel. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've had Devin Williams for a few years <laughs> right. now, and he, it seems like he barely got, I mean, I'm trying to think of, famous like Devin Williams catches at Oregon and there's just unfortunately there's not that many um despite his immense talent so yeah the, the wide receiver room is again we've said this about every position at this point but definitely a position group to watch uh, I mean if you're anything like us you'll be watching every position group anyways so um yeah definitely go check out Hit's article and uh we'll see how that offense develops during Dillingham, Dillingham's time at Oregon I agree with your assessment though that it's definitely the riskiest hire out of all the names. I mean, a guy like Lupoy just seems like an obvious fit. I mean, guys like Adrian Clem and, I mean, really all these A1 recruiters, like, they make a ton of sense. 
not to say Dillingham isn't an A1 recruiter, but I mean, it, he doesn't have the same resume and experience as some of these other guys. So in that sense, it's a really interesting hire. And it's okay to be skeptical about that kind of thing. You don't have to sit here and defend a guy in March when he hasn't <laughs> called a play yet. Um, Definitely, right. Arguably bigger than spring practice this week was uh, the recruiting and the amount, sheer amount and quality of names that were on campus in Eugene this week, either on officials or unofficials. Obviously, this is our obligatory scoop duck plug. Not obligatory, we just always mention it because we love it. Um, our guy Jonathan Prodigy, who's been on the show multiple times, uh, and our guy J-Hop, who always has the best information, had, as usual, the best information about uh, these recruiting visits. So what? who stood out to you? Who should we be looking for? Like, what are the biggest like storylines coming out of this weekend? Yeah, I think that um, the immediate one, I mean, Connor Lee is the guy who is front of mind because he has a decision coming up probably towards the end of this month or maybe early April. Um, and so that's the one that everyone's going to look like, look at. Uh, there's already an interview up on Scoop Duck for people who, who want to check it out. I'm sure hopefully a lot of the people have already read it who are listening to this. Um, that's a big battle. Looks like it's Oregon and USC maybe with, with UW having an outsider shot, but I'd, I would be pretty surprised by that. Um, and we'll just have to see what happens. Uh, I think NIL is a boogeyman always now, and I kind of try to not talk about it too much because I think it's been an excuse in recruiting for so long, you know, and I especially get frustrated when people lose a battle to Oregon and they say, oh, well, they just paid for this guy or whatever. Um, <laughs> I, I just think it's, it's kind of dumb. And ultimately, I think that even – in this new era, uh, except for a few kind of crazy cases, a lot of times it still is going to come down to relationships, especially for guys who have like, you know, NFL aspirations, want to be developed, are looking at potentially bigger paydays down the line at the NFL level. You know, mm -hmm. they're going to want to go to places that they can trust. So I still think that that's a big part of it. Um, and so, yeah, so with Connerly, um, that's. That's what we're going to look at. You know, it's kind of the staff was playing catch up a bit because they came together late. Um, but kind of so is USC's staff, right? So it's yeah. it's tough to really say, like, uh, what's going to happen. I think USC getting the last visit obviously is a position where you kind of are um, – You'd rather have the last visit most times, uh, but I think this weekend just kind of worked out for Oregon, um, and so they, they got him on campus. It went well, it sounds like, right? I mean, people can read the article. Uh, it always goes well, it seems like, in these visits <laughs> at Oregon, right? I mean, the facilities are great. The staff, we know well kind of what their recruiting prowess is and their ability to develop relationships so i don't think it's ever going to be a question of of a guy you know coming off his visit and saying oh well i didn't really like dan landing that much or i didn't really like tosh that much they're always going to like them right um mm -hmm. and they're always going to say our facilities are good um and so there were a few other little tidbits in that interview with Connerly that were really good a couple things that stood out to him that uh, I thought were were especially interesting. He mentioned like the Black Culture Center at, at the University of Oregon. That was a cool mm -hmm. thing that that it hadn't been mentioned a lot by some other recruits. Um, that was a cool thing that I thought 
that the staff was featuring that in their visits. Um, but we'll see also, I think it's kind of, you know, the vibes have been really positive. The early reports have been super positive from the staff, but ultimately uh, in terms of making my own predictions and stuff, I, I feel a little bit like I'm flying blind because we just don't really know how this staff closes completely. You know, we kind of had patterns to look at with Mario before and see, okay, if guys were saying this, if we thought we had, you know, we thought we were really close with a guy that meant we're usually going to get him or, you know, versus, these, versus that USC staff, uh, we had a good track record. But now it's a new USC staff and it's a new Oregon staff. Um, so it's tough to totally say, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. ultimately, like I said, the nature of, you know, you talk to these recruits and a lot of times they're going to be positive, especially late in the cycle when they have, you know, they're only down to three schools and he's visiting Oregon because he likes Oregon, right? Um, so you still can glean some interesting things from those interviews. Um, but ultimately it's tough to be super confident either way for me right now. Um, I kind of lean slightly towards USC for, for Connerly, but I think Oregon's really in there. Uh, at, you know, maybe I'd say 30, 40% chance uh, the Ducks can pull it off, and it would be a huge statement uh, for Clem, especially if they did. Um, the other guy who was in 2022, uh, five-star who visited was, was Lebius Overton out of Georgia, uh, along with his brother. I think, you know, it sounds like that visit went really well as well, um, but I think that's another example of even more so because of the distance and everything. Yes, the visit went well. Yes, they enjoyed their time here. Yes, as with everyone, Lanning and Lapoy and, you know, all the guys on the staff are going to be pretty personable and make it an enjoyable thing. But, you know, does Oregon now lead because they enjoyed spending time with Lanning and Lapoy? Probably not. You know, I think the RPM I pulled up on on, on three still has Texas A&M as a 90% favorite as they have been with every defensive lineman who's a five-star yeah. <laughs> in this cycle, pretty much. So um, I wouldn't hold my breath there. Um, but in terms of some more positive long-term signs from the weekend, um, Kyler Casper and Jurion Dickey are two wide receivers who we've talked about on this podcast since, you know, probably for about two months here. Mm -hmm. uh, and I talked about them, especially when Jonathan was on, they're guys who are priorities for the staff, the new staff, especially like Casper. Uh, Dickey has for a long time been kind of, you know, positive on the ducks. It seemed like through social media and everything. Uh, and it seemed like both those relationships are getting solidified with Casper on campus this past weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, and like maybe those dominoes are, are, could be the next to fall in Oregon's favor. Um, we'll see how that breaks because again, we don't really know, right? We don't really know with this new staff how well they close and get commitments early on or whether, you know, Lanning's uh, approach to commitments is, as he said, back when he was first hired, which is like, let's not rush to get into this. Uh, let's, you know, walk to get it right rather than run to get it wrong. Maybe he's not the type of guy who pressures hard to get commitments from kids as, as soon as they're kind of considering it. Uh, I don't know what his, what his philosophy will be in that regard totally. 
or you know what a commitment will mean under him exactly because there's some programs where you commit and you lock down everything you don't visit anywhere there's some programs where um you commit and it feels like it means almost nothing and you still put out mm-hmm. top fives and you, you know you still take your visits and you still um talk about being interested in other schools uh and both those approaches have their merits i think but uh, it'll be interesting to see how this staff approaches commitments, how they kind of pressure to get the commitments. Um, but regardless, it seems like Casper and Dickey are two guys, two really good wide receiver who Oregon is in a good spot for. Uh, and then Jaden Wayne, borderline yep. five-star edge out of Washington. Uh, there are actually two interviews up on Scoop Duck with mm-hmm. him. Um, yeah, one of them both, just dropped. Yeah. Yeah both very good uh and oregon seems like they're in a good position for him too that's a guy who could be a five star by the end of this class that'd be a huge pickup right i mean that's a guy who mm-hmm. it's not quite you know cave on level but there's not that many people who you'd you know when you say oh another cave on is isn't walking in the door well there's not that many people who can approximate that closer than Jaden wayne could um yeah and th- and then more good also, vibes. Yeah, I mean, with ahead. Wayne, it's just the significance of getting a guy, keeping a guy on the West Coast. I mean, I'm looking at, yeah. you know, the RPM and where he's considering. I mean, <laughs> Miami is the obvious name. Like, of course, you want to get one over on Cristobal and those guys. But in general, I mean, football is still a regional enterprise. And keeping the guys, keeping guys near your home, close to home is a big difference, especially when you get guys on the West Coast, which are fewer and far between, farther between than you know, guys from the area of Miami or Alabama or really anywhere in the South or Texas. So in that sense, it adds kind of another layer to the significance of Wayne's recruitment specifically. Yeah. And I, and I would say also just kind of a little bit of insight on like how, how recruiting really works in terms of your proximity. It's not only an advantage because you're close to them and they can visit more frequently, but how it tends to work in terms of timing is when a guy's in your backyard or in your footprint and for oregon that means you know oregon california washington and a few other states um, Mm -hmm. sometimes arizona sometimes utah uh, you need to go and offer that guy usually a little bit earlier or you're expected Mm -hmm. to because you're there and you you send that offer as a sophomore and you start recruiting them and you try to get a head start because those big fish you know and particularly in this recruitment it seems like alabama could be that that team uh anytime you see the a around (laughs) they're probably you know they might send out an offer when this guy's a sophomore or junior but as we know offers don't mean everything um and then kind of right around now when you know that that spring of the junior year leading into the recruitment is when they're probably going to pare down their board a bit and say, okay, we looked a few years ago, this guy all the way in the other corner of the country looked really promising. Now let's see, you know, how has he progressed? Oh, he's still really, really good. We've been in contact with him, but now we're going to turn it on to a 10, you know, when, when this new recruiting cycle kind of kicks off in right now, basically, you know, January, Mm -hmm. February, March. We're going to push for him to visit. We're going to go, you know, full court press. This is a guy that now we've decided Alabama wants and will take 100%. Uh, and that's when it, that's, 
that's when you better hope if you're Oregon that you have some, you know, relationship before that to fall back on uh, and that you kind of have a little bit of a lead already so that you can hold off Alabama kind of their big push down the stretch. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems like Oregon's doing the right things right now to kind of kind of put themselves in a position to at least be in a real fight uh, for that recruitment as well. Do you want to touch on uh, the news with Presley and Dalen Austin before we get to probably the biggest news? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with, with Caleb Presley, Dalen Austin, those are just two other cornerbacks who uh, just, you know, more good vibes. Uh, 23 you know, guys, right? Yeah, exactly. 2023 yeah. guys. All these guys other than Connerly and Overton are 2023. Um, but yeah, you know, they're, they're just another example of guys who are on campus who, you know, are going to be on campus who, you know, more positive results. And again, like I said, it's, it's hearing all the right things right now. It's like it couldn't have really gone any better other than having commitments from a few of these guys. But at the same time, ultimately, what matters in the sport is actually getting the commitment. So we have mm -hmm. to see kind of how these these positive reports progress towards that. And hopefully it seems like all indications are at least with a few of these guys, you know, maybe Casper and Dickey, a commitment could come soon. And then with some guys like Presley and Austin, you're setting the groundwork to be in it for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, OK, now that that's <laughs> now that the guys who were on campus are out of the way. We need to talk about another guy who was on campus not too long ago, um, but actually made news, made headlines in a different part of the country, namely Knoxville, Tennessee. That would be Nico Iamaleava. Going to roll with that. Five-star quarterback. Uh, the last time we talked uh, on this podcast, we talked about how he is unequivocally the most important recruit in Oregon's 2023 class. Unfortunately, uh, on three's RPM now has Oregon at a lowly, I don't have the number in front of me, I lost it. Pretty low percentage compared to, oh, here it is, 6% compared to Tennessee's 23. Um, of course, people are linking this with a similarly timed report about a high school junior, nondescript high school junior, reportedly signing an $8 million NIL agreement somewhere. Uh, a lot of people around the recruiting landscape are putting two and two together and assuming this is Nico and Tennessee after his visit to Knoxville, which went pretty much as well as it could have by all reports. A lot of people are, you know, using this as a bigger picture thing, like they're talking about it in terms of NIL and what its role should be in recruiting or what it shouldn't be. Um, you kind of hit on this already, and I feel similar. Like, I, I don't really care when it comes to NIL, like obviously it's important. So I care in that sense about like what Oregon is or isn't doing for these athletes. Uh, and by Oregon, of course, I mean the third party division street, not Oregon as a school, cause that's illegal. But um, anyways, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay with athletes getting paid. Like I seriously don't care um, about the eth ethical side of things. I think it's fine, but it is significant in terms of news because if, we are correctly putting these two things together and it is Nico and it is Tennessee that this $8 million report is about, then it probably means he's going to Knoxville and that's not great. Uh, so, you know, in that case, Oregon might have to look at different guys in the quarterback room, maybe like a Dante Moore or uh, Jaden Rashada. So what, if you, do you agree with like that percentage assessment from on three? What do you think if you had to put a percent on it, like is the, is Mariota 2.0 completely gone? 
I don't think that um, I don't think I'm ready to throw it all out right now. I think that people are a little bit uh, over eager to kind of switch things up after each and every visit. Uh, especially I think when you start to see a pattern of, of a guy going on one visit, one team takes the lead, goes on another visit, that team takes the lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you, you have to start kind of trying to hold back a little bit and just ride out the waves of this thing. Um, now certainly, you know, if it's true and it's an $8 million offer from Tennessee, that's significant, right? Um, Yes. <laughs> and that, you know, if that's on the table, it's not, it's a factor that doesn't go away and that you don't just forget about um, with one, you know, new visit, I guess. So we're going to have to see uh, how that goes exactly. Um, but, yeah. but I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give up totally. But at the same time, I think that Oregon has done a good job kind of putting themselves in a position uh, with some of those other guys where there are other options for them to kind of look at after, after this, um, and, and kind of see, you know, what there, there are other quarterbacks on the board that they could go for still, I guess is what I mean. Um, Mm -hmm. and still a chance to, to kind of salvage a really good class. And maybe, you know, if you, if you make a move on a guy like, uh, Dickie and Casper, that kind of could help pull the momentum back for Oregon. So, I think it's just something to monitor, um, but it seems like recruiting, you know, uh, the early reports back have been positive in other areas from this from the staff. So we're going to just see how that rides out, I guess. Yeah, I, I would also like to address something about the reporting concerning these these sort of things. Uh, some I saw a couple of Oregon fans getting like mad at people like. Uh, Steve Wiltfong for like switching their crystal balls from Oregon to Tennessee after, after Nico's respective visits and like, yeah, of course they're going to change their predictions if they think the kid's mind has changed. Like this is not, (laughs) they're not betting on these guys like to go a certain place. This is where they genuinely, you know, people make their live, make their (laughs) money off of this stuff in terms of, giving you information so they're not going to like have an agenda and hide information from you in that sense so i don't know i i just think it's kind of funny that people would question somebody like wilt fong who's probably the most respected person in this industry when it comes to making predictions um yeah and yeah of, as a as a track like, record to back up his <laughs> yeah yeah like of course you know of course when a guy visits someplace like yes it's obvious that that place will then be trending for him. Like that's how recruiting works. That's how the minds of high school kids work. Uh, Cause again, let's, let's not get it twisted here. That's what, <laughs> that's what this all boils down to is like, what is what Nico is thinking about every day and who he's talking to every day. So at these respective programs. So yeah, um, that's all I really have to say about that. Uh, again, maybe it's Rashada. Maybe it's more that the ducks pivot to if Nico ends up going to Tennessee, but this fight is by no means over. I mean, I don't think he has a commitment date planned. I don't remember if he does. Um, yeah, no, not a specific one. Sometime in April. But I, I think that, you know, yeah, I mean, $8 million is a big figure, right? If that's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is a massive figure. Yeah, for um, comparison, I mean, people were balking at Bryce Young when Saban talked about Bryce Young making like $1 million last year. 
Right. So eight for a guy who's still literally a junior in high school is pretty significant. Um, yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I mean, in terms of big picture, I wonder if this stuff will continue to kind of grow in magnitude or how it will change as, as these schools kind of learn uh, from their decisions, you know, whether they're either mistakes or whether, you know, Nico goes there and ends up winning a Heisman and they compete for the yeah. SEC or something. And it turns out that it's a good investment. Um, yeah. And but, by schools, of course, you mean the, the third party <laughs> NIL sources right. that are behind. <laughs> right, right. Um, school would never, never engage, especially a school as uh, in te- <laughs> that has such integrity as Tennessee. It would never <laughs> entice recruits. With money. No. Um, but I mean, Oregon still has some advantages in this, right? I think, you know, distance, we'll see how that matters, right? Sometimes it matters to, to recruit, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but even just the yeah. on-field success, I mean, I think that Oregon's going to build out a class here unless Tennessee starts dropping bags left and right. Uh, Oregon's probably going to build out a class that's better than Tennessee. They're probably going to have a season that's more successful than Tennessee and be on a trajectory to compete at a higher level than Tennessee for, you know, the three years that Nico's there. Uh, again, barring like a major shift in Tennessee's recruiting or, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are advantages too, right? And we'll just have to see, you know, it's, it's <laughs> like you said, it's tough to just predict ultimately. It's comes down to the decision of one, you know, high school uh, player and his family uh, and what they decide to value. Um, but certainly couldn't judge him uh, for, for taking eight mil if that's on the table and, you know, good for him. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> not, I'm not upset by that either. Right. Yeah. All right, man. Uh, unless you got anything else you want to touch on, I believe we've covered all our bases for now. Obviously we'll have a lot more content coming in the next couple weeks after this big, long spring break that the entire football program is on. Um, yeah. Anything else? No, I think we pretty much did it. Yeah. Just, you know, doing a little recruiting and, and practice report stuff so far. And I think that's pretty much going to be kind of the tone for, uh, for the rest of this, you know, springtime. So we'll see how Not that goes. Not to say goes. it won't It'll be, be important. Ramp up. Yeah. Right. Um, what do you have? Uh, you have a national championship pick in, uh, or a final four pick in college basketball as we get our, as we head on our way out. You know, I filled out my bracket this morning as I ate breakfast and, uh, I, you know, when it comes to brackets at this point, I'm done making like eight of them. You know, I'm done doing all these different permutations and stuff. And I just go with my heart. Like, I don't want my rooting. I don't want my rooting interests to conflict with my bracket interests. So I just go with who I want to win each game. And my final four ended up with uh, Gonzaga, UCLA, Arizona, and USC. So with Arizona as the champ. So in case you were questioning where my allegiances lie in the national landscape, um, still in the conference of champions. What about you? I have, uh, I have my final four is, uh, Arizona, Iowa, Kentucky, and I got Memphis making a sleeper run. Ooh. Yeah. It's, that's, I, I, I always pressure myself to try to pick a sleeper. Um, yeah. And, 
Yeah, last year I famously had uh, Michigan State going to the Final Four out of the mm. play-in game between Michigan State and UCLA. Then when <laughs> UCLA won it, I switched my pick. <laughs> That's <It's> horrible. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, because right now it still shows up as the slash. Like on right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then Michigan State lost, and I was like, oh, there goes my Final Four pick in overtime too to UCLA. I was like, yeah. there goes my Final Four pick. Um, anyways, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I went with Memphis. I don't really know why. I, I hear they trap a lot, um, in the post and, you know, Gonzaga has, mm. has Temi and Holgren, Holmgren. So I'm thinking maybe they get the upset there and kind of ride that out. And then I had, I had a vision of the coach Cal rematch in the final four, Memphis, Kentucky kind of. Ooh, so awesome. I went with that and then I had Arizona over Kentucky in the national title game. So that's uh, I like it. Yeah, I had Arizona too. That Gonzaga Memphis kind of mini bracket is in Portland actually. So right, yeah. Maybe some people hope. Maybe I'll be able to get out to that. Actually, that'd be kind of cool. I wonder what like ticket prices are like the, for March Madness. I actually I saw it earlier today. I think they're only like uh, I think it was twenty one bucks to get in the building. I saw. Oh, that's not for bad. the for the first hmm. round. So. I'd consider it. It sounds really fun. If I was in Portland, I, I'd consider doing it. I'm a little nervous, though, because Memphis plays Boise State in Portland. Yeah, um, yeah. And so that's what I, I'm like, well, if the Boise State crowd gets going, because there's going to be some contingent there, you know, and mm-hmm. then I lose my Final Four team in the first round. Wouldn't be the first time it happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. All right, well, uh, yeah, that covers our bases, so enjoy March Madness. It starts, wow, it starts today, actually. The play-in games do, no, at least. Yeah, yeah, the play-in games do, yeah. Um, and, yeah, keep checking Scoop Duck for all your recruiting and spring practice updates, uh, especially recruiting over these next few weeks. Or Just because it's the only thing going on doesn't mean it's vital to the success of the program, so go check that out. And, uh, yeah, go Ducks. Go Ducks. <laughs>